Um, we're reading from Genesis 6, 1 through nine seventeen today. When man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward, when the sons of God came in to the daughters of man and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animal and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. And Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end to all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you are to make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits, its breadth, 50 cubits, and its height, 30 cubits. Make a roof for the ark and finish it to a cubit above and set the door of the ark in its side. Make it with lower, second, and third decks. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female. Of the birds according to their kinds, and of the animals according to their kinds, of every creeping thing of the ground according to its kind, two of every sort shall come into you to keep them alive." Also take with you every sort of food that is eaten and store it up. It shall serve as food for you and for them. Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. Then the Lord said to Noah, go into the ark, you and all your household, for I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. Take with you seven pairs of all clean animals, the male and his mate, and a pair of the animals that are not clean, the male and his mate, and seven pairs of the birds of the heaven also, male and female, to keep their offspring alive on the face of all the earth. For in seven days I will send rain on the earth forty days and forty nights, and every living thing that I have made I will blot out from the face of the ground. And Noah did all that the Lord had commanded him. 
Noah was 600 years old when the flood of waters came upon the earth. And Noah and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him went into the ark to escape the waters of the flood. Of clean animals and of animals that were not clean and of birds and of everything that creeps on the ground, two and two, male and female, went into the ark with Noah as God had commanded Noah. And after seven days, the waters of the flood came upon the earth. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on that day, all the fountains of the great deep burst forth, and the windows of the heavens were opened, and rain fell upon the earth 40 days and 40 nights. On the very same day, Noah and his sons, Shem and Ham and Japheth, and Noah's wife and the three wives of the sons with them entered the ark, they and every beast according to its kind, and all the livestock according to their kinds, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth according to its kind, and every bird according to its kind, every winged creature. They went into the ark with Noah, two and two of all flesh in which there was the breath of life. And those who entered, male and female of all flesh, went in as God had commanded them. And the Lord shut him in. The flood continued 40 days on the earth. The waters increased and bore up the ark, and it rose high above the earth. The waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the face of the waters. And the waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered. The waters prevailed above the mountains, covering them 15 cubits deep. And all flesh died that moved on the earth. Bird, livestock, beast, all swarming creatures that swarm on the earth, and all mankind. Everything on the dry land in whose nostrils was the breath of life died. He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. They were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left and those who were with him in the ark. And the waters prevailed on the earth 150 days. But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. And God made a wind blow over the earth, and the waters subsided. The fountains of the deep and the windows of the heavens were closed. The rain from the heavens was restrained, and the waters receded from the earth continually. At the end of the 150 days, the waters had abated. And in the seventh month, on the 17th day of the month, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. And the waters continued to abate until the 10th month. In the 10th month, on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains were seen. At the end of 40 days, Noah opened the windows of the ark that he had made and sent forth a raven. It went to and fro until the waters were dried up from the earth. Then he sent forth a dove from him to see if the waters had subsided from the face of the ground. But the dove found no place to set her foot, and she returned to him to the ark, for the waters were still on the face of the whole earth. So he put out his hand and took her and brought her into the ark with him. He waited another seven days, and again he sent forth the dove out of the ark. And the dove came back to him in the evening, and behold, in her mouth was a freshly plucked olive leaf. 
So no one knew that the waters had subsided from the earth. Then he waited another seven days and sent forth the dove, and she did not return to him anymore. In the 601st year, in the first month, the first day of the month, the waters were dried from off the earth. And Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked, and behold, the face of the ground was dry. In the second month, on the 27th day of the month, the earth had dried out. Then God said to Noah, go out from the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing that is with you of all flesh, birds and animals and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, that they may swarm on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So Noah went out, and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him. Every beast, every creeping thing, and every bird, everything that moves on the earth went out by families from the ark. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. And you be fruitful and multiply. Increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you, and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark. It is for every beast of the earth. I will establish my covenant with you, that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the water shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. 
God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I've established between me and all the flesh that is on the earth. This is the word of the Lord. Yeah, well done, Evie. Very well done. Uh, Good morning, everybody. I'm excited to see you all uh, here in the flesh. Uh, I want to start this morning uh, with being honest with y'all. Is it okay if I'm like super honest this morning? Um, and the, and, the, and the, there's some, you, you can't agree too soon. Uh, so it can't get weird afterwards, okay? So you have to decide right now. No matter what I'm about to say, you can't be weird afterwards. Can't become all about me. You can't just be thinking this morning, oh gosh, I really need to solve Brad's problems for him. So you can't do that. All right, it's just so that we would all know like, where I am and where I'm coming from, and we could just have this sort of shared collective understanding. Is that okay? You all agree to it now? Ah, people are like, I don't know now. Uh, I've had a terrible 10 days, like terrible 10 days. Uh, not the worst 10 days of my life, probably, but pretty, like, it's pretty uh, catastrophic, chaotic, overwhelming kind of amounts of bad, bad news. Uh, 10 days ago, Mirel and I had to land unplanned, diverted from our flight from New York to LA in New Mexico. Uh, No problems with New Mexico, except I think Breaking Bad is pretty accurate around the people and the place. Uh, It was a little traumatic. We spent half the night in the airport. It took us nearly 24 hours to finally get home on another plane that functioned correctly. Because uh, that was the problem with the plane when we landed so quickly. Uh, when we did finally get back, uh, we got uh, the news that my dad was like, hey, there's some water in your basement that's newly remodeled. We remodeled it and finished it. And so I went down there, and there was tons of water in our basement. And I thought to myself, dad, you could call a plumber anytime you want. Anyway, uh, we went down there. Uh, vacuumed up water after water after water, dumping up, you know, in our shop vac water over and over again. And what happened after all that is just the realization of a few days later that the whole sewer system that we have has broken. Uh, And so what they had to do is uh, ask us, you know, to spend a lot of money that we frankly don't have. Uh, And to fix the problem, they had to do some of this to our yard. You want to show the pictures? So uh, this is like, they put, that's like a 10-foot hole, and then if you know me and you've gone to a party in our house, you know, that's like some special place right there. But then you also know that I'm a real good gardener, right? Yeah. Most of you know. So then uh, where the garden plot is, they had to dig like a 12-foot hole. Those are, that stuff used to grow things besides styrofoam uh, just not very long ago. I uh, woke up on Tuesday without my back really functioning very well. Uh, the pain was overwhelming, probably from sleeping on the floor in an airport, turning 37, uh, and cleaning up a bunch of water in the basement. Uh, day after day, we got bad news after bad news. A lot of things that are really just frankly not appropriate to share in front of everyone publicly, but just really hard things. Honestly, stuff that's harder and more grievous than what I've shared about my garden and things. Uh, So much so that on Friday, we actually didn't receive bad news, but my body like felt like, especially at one o'clock, which is when most of the bad news happened, I was just so overwhelmed with stress. Like I was like, we have to leave my my house. 
uh, and go somewhere else because I'm so like expecting bad news. Uh, family, I was so sad uh, that I was given money for my birthday, you know, to buy shoes. And this is how sad I, I am. I scrolled through the websites that I scroll through to buy shoes. Uh, part of me was angry, uh, no offense, but that teenage girls have ruined shoes, then the pricing of shoes for most of us. Uh, I'm really glad you discovered Jordans. It's wonderful. Uh, they've stopped making them for middle-aged men. Uh, and maybe that's a sign. But even beneath all of that was just this deep sadness of like, I don't even want to buy shoes. Low Brad, thank you. No even desire to buy it. But here's what I know and what I've come to believe and what I continue to believe as I've studied the story of the flood this week. It's this. Resurrection and restoration always comes after weeping and wrath. Resurrection and restoration always comes after weeping and wrath. I think that's what the psalmist meant in Psalm 126, 5, when it says, those who sow in tears will reap with shouts of joy. That those who are sowing in tears will one day reap a harvest of shouts of joy. Uh, Psalm 45 uh, says it a really similar way, and this is, you know, the King James Version is way better. Weeping may endure in the night, but joy comes in the morning. Noah and his family's story tells us this, that weeping and havoc and chaos and wrath will always make way to joy. And you might be confused. You could be like, Brad, no, you've had a bad week. Clearly, you weren't spending enough time studying this passage. This is not a passage that could encourage you that way. Like, I'm sorry, try again. You know, you might think, well, after all, this is a story that God put in the Bible to teach us how much he loves about, you know, the animals. Like, we had a really good friend and a neighbor who would tell us, not a Christian at all, but my favorite story is Noah and the Ark because God loves the animals so much. And I want to be like, Genesis 1 is about that. <laughs> this might not be so much about that. But you might be there. You might be thinking, no, this is a good story. It helps us teach our kids about all the different kinds of animals and how you can build a boat with a hole in the top for the giraffe's head to come through. And it's about helping children learn how to count by twos. Like, this is what it is. It's a cute biblical way to decorate our nurseries and stuff for our kids. Like, that's why it's put in the Bible, so that Fisher-Price could create a biblical-based child's toy, uh, which we had, and maybe you guys have them too. Uh, others of you are kind of reading through the lines, or rather, you are paying attention, and you're certain, you're like, this is not a cute story. You're like, this is, there's no way this is a cute story. Uh, as a preaching team, we've been kind of dumbfounded sometimes by the grittiness of the book of Genesis because we're always taught cute Genesis. There's this really cute version where the, the animals are kind of, I don't know what they do, they airbrush them or something, and it's just bubbly animals, and it's just so cute, and there's a man with a big white beard, and he's getting on this boat that looks so nice and lovely, and that's what it's all about. We're like, no, this is really Gritty, this isn't a nursery rhyme. Uh, it's not a neat decor scheme. 
Uh, it's like death of every person, destruction of all cities and homes and all mammals, all gone. You know, you can't just afterwards, but aren't the two animals cute? It's like, oh, wow. This is a narrative about lots and lots of brokenness, of lots of destruction, lots of weeping, lots of wreckage. It's a story about God's wrath. Uh, But overall, it's about how wreckage makes way to wrath and then how wrath makes way to promise and restoration every single time. And as we study this, we will see that joy does come in the morning. Story begins with a lot of evil. Uh, That's the first little bits. People are quite evil. Uh, Every inclination of their heart was evil all the time. And that's what God says about it. That's his phrase. He's the narrator of this point of the story. God looks, he's sad, he's filled with regret and grief, and he says, their desires of their heart, meaning that what people intend, what they long for, like you have longings and desires, you know, maybe it's for uh, just a better sewer system or something, I don't know, but you have longings and desires, and, and you know, there's, there's some good desires, there's some weird desires, there's some desires you're like, I don't know if it's good or bad, What God is saying is, no, at this time, everything that was in somebody's heart was for evil and death and brokenness all the time. A continuous, constant thing. Uh, The language is really around violence. There's, There's psychological and physical violence that people want to enact evil constantly. Receive evil, pay it back with evil, over and over again, that there's this individual amount of evil, like that each man was evil all the time, but then there's also the collective, as as he talks about it, that the whole thing itself was evil, a system of acts of evil. Uh, You can think about the people who first, you know, heard this and read this, the people of Israel out in the desert with their past history, and they could remember, oh yeah, like the slave drivers of Pharaoh, who actually whipped us and wounded us and did all of that to us, but then were also in this system that allowed them to do it, where they were paid to whip us and beat us and force us. And the reason they were doing that is because there was this whole system of idolatry that we had to build these things to gods that weren't really gods. And then the thing that kind of fed it all was just this incredible amount of greed, You know, you walk around any extravagant museum in the world today and you find all of these Egyptian artifacts. It's really just about people filling holes with wealth and then building these big monuments above them, right? And so I think they could understand, oh yeah, people being evil and a system of evil constantly over and over and over again. There's this word that, he, uh, that the, the writer uses over and over again, which is, I'm not going to tell you the Hebrew word, but it's this word corruption. And the way Hebrew uh, narrative works is often they choose a word that they're going to repeat over and over again. Like there's this famous example uh, in the end of 2 Samuel where the word comes up as you read it in English. It's house, 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 over and over again. David's trying to build a house for God, but he has a... Anyway, in Hebrew, they use specific words over and over again, almost like a narrative hanger. So if you've ever gone to a musical or watched a kid's musical on TV or something like that, you know there's these little sounds and these notes 
these overtures, right, that tell you a new character is coming in or a new scene, a new uh, a reminding, a callback, you know, like the Imperial March in Star Wars. The word uh, throughout this narrative is the word corruption, repeated throughout. And the way it's used is to kind of show us that it's growing, that man is corrupt, all men are corrupt. It's getting bigger and bigger and bigger, an overwhelming amount of corruption. Everybody is evil all the time and wants to do evil. Not like these accidental evils where it's like, oh, I bumped into your car. No, like I wanted to bump into your car. Do you understand? But Noah. But Noah, it says. Everyone's evil, but Noah. It says Noah was a man who knew God. You might remember last week as uh, my dad was preaching on Cain and Abel that there was this time where people first began to call on the name of the Lord. Noah is from that line, that tradition of like, he's somebody who knew God, who walked with God, who called on the name of God. The Bible says he was, he was blameless and righteous, you know? We don't know if that's like, oh, in comparison to all these jokers, you know, like when I was a kid in Portugal and I was really good at basketball because I was a foot taller than everyone. I don't know if it's like that, like I thought I was Shaquille O'Neal, who was a basketball player, you guys. Uh, he's not, he doesn't play anymore, so, and his jerseys are expensive. Anyway, maybe it's a comparison thing. I don't really know, but it says that he was somebody who knew God who walked with God, and in the face of all the evil and all of the, the intention of humanity's heart and all the corruption and the violence that they were doing, there was this one, Noah. And, he's, and, and God calls him, build a boat. Gather up these people, these, your family, your relatives. We're going to put all a, a kind of a time capsule of life together. And then the, the waves come and the, the, they get in, the, the door gets shut, the waters begin to fall, uh, the language is so poetic, it's like the heavens open up and so do the ground. I definitely, you know, I can relate to the water coming out of the ground, but it's that kind of all of a sudden, you know, and for us we've had, I think, like 20 days of rain since November, and we're like, done with it, Right? They get in and it rains for 40 days, 40 nights. They open up the door over and over again each morning, even going in knowing God's like, yeah, it's going to rain for 40 days and 40 nights. But as the water comes up and everything that they know is destroyed and then all they can see for miles and miles is just water all the time. And if you imagine that kind of water, the waves crashing around them, being tossed to and fro, dark skies, bleak questions, I wonder like, who is this God? As they watch their entire existence disappear. What hope can be found in a God that's that vengeful, that destructive? 40 days, nothing but rain, pouring, filling, destroying all that's known. And... Uh, Maybe it was a water covering every single thing. Like, I know there's a bunch of people, questions in their minds. Like, there's, there's one thought process you can go through about, like, how long would it take to feed every animal? And I just want you to know, it's like a lot of years. So they, would, they wouldn't even be able to feed the first animal by the, you know, anyway. 
Maybe you're thinking through how many tons of water, where did all that water go? All I know is this from the Bible. Maybe it was covering every entire area of the known world. Maybe it was covering the Himalayas. What we do know is that as far as the people had scattered at that time, they were washed away in the flood. As far as the animals had dispersed, they were washed away in the flood. It was cataclysmic. Nothing was left for all that the eye could see or know. And so as the waters rise, I imagine so do the worries. Where will we be when all of this is over? What will be left for us? You imagine uh, Noah's children, these like married couples. What kind of world will we walk out of? Or the horror of, will we get to walk out of this? Because he, God tells them 40 days, 40 nights, it's going to rain. But then there's 150 days of just floating on the water. Remember the people of Israel, they're rescued out of Egypt. How? Through water. Kind of, you know, Bible never misses a moment. They're walking uh, through dry land as the waters are separated in the Red Sea, and then all of the evil and the systems of destruction and violence that held them down for so long are wiped away with water. And then they walk out into what? Paradise? Grassy lands? Desert? Terrible desert. Like sometimes people are like, oh, that must be some amazing tourist attractions, you know, Mount Sinai and stuff. No, 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 just Google it. I don't care how like into Jewish history you are or Christian you are or whatever. It's like, no, I'm not taking a detour to that part of the world. It is that desolate, that awful. The numbers should actually be called just wilderness, just a wild land. And they, they get rescued through water. And then they begin to ask, as you read the story, what is God doing with us now? Was it really so bad that he had to destroy the whole thing and bring us out here? Is God really vengeful? God is, we, we encounter God in this passage. We've seen him before uh, with Adam and Eve. He comes and draws them out, right? He draws them out. He, he provides curses. But as Josh said so well, the blessings so outweigh the curses. Then we also see with Cain and Abel. Really, it's about Cain. Abel's story is real short. And then with Cain, it's, it's much longer. And he's trying to pursue him, trying to protect him, trying to stop him from sinning. Then he's trying to like, uh, you know, console him and even protects him just a little bit, right? But then we come in contact with a God who is distressed by sin. That the death and the brokenness is on a level so great, so big, he is distressed. Uh, because in the words used for this, when it says that he regrets, or that really it's kind of this wor word of it's out of balance, the world. It's a, it's a language around accounting and, and justice. That, that he created a world for, you know, human thriving and flourishment and worship, you know, a temple to praise him, never ending, if you remember. It seems like a long time ago. But that's what he created it for. But then as God analyzes and looks at what's actually happening, the books are so skewed 
that he has to do something about them, that the, the evil and the, all of that is so great. Some of us might be like, oh, so it's vengeance. You know, justice and vengeance are not the same thing. Uh, I'm going to spoil a movie, but it's been out for a while, and it's not that good anyway, so it's no big deal. And the movie Wakanda Forever. Everyone's seen it? Who wants to? It's been long enough. Go ahead. It's been long enough. It's on you now. And I've never done this before, but I'm going to ruin it. Wakanda Forever, you know, it's a Marvel movie. There's a bad guy. He's really, really bad. Uh, he kills the mom of the Black Panther. Uh, he comes and he brainwashes people to walk off of cliffs. He destroys schools and marketplaces. I mean, it's really evil. Have you ever seen the shot where he was a boy and he's like killing monks and stuff? I mean, it's awful. Like he's really, really evil. But then at the end, uh, the new Black Panther, uh, Letitia Wright, who's wonderful. She's like the bright spot of the whole thing. Uh, and she's there, she's about to kill this guy uh, who's so evil. And then she has these flashbacks through her head of like, oh, vengeance is not justice. Vengeance is so bad. If she does vengeance, it's going to ruin everything. And so what she decides to do to kind of overcome this is justice in the Marvel universe is he gets to go back to his country and he gets to continue being what he is. That's the justice in the end. That's what it's all about. If we could just, you know, be okay with people doing incredible violence to us, it's no big deal. And I think that's honestly what we want kind of culturally is people do really, really terrible stuff and then we just say no big deal, right? God, his justice does not work that way. Biblical justice is not about a sequestering of evil, but it's about an eradication of evil and the birth of good. That's biblical justice. Justice for God is all things are made right. Uh, following um, the, the final verdict and uh, sentencing uh, and the trials for uh, the, the police officer who ultimately killed uh, George Floyd, the, the prosecutors stood in front of everybody in these press conferences and talked about how real justice would be George Floyd being alive, not these people going to prison. That would be real justice. For God, biblical justice is all things made right. And so God looks at the accounts of evil, the self-inflicted, self-perpetuating destruction. It's like a renewable resource of darkness and corruption, a bottomless pit, a cascading failure of one thing after the other, like our banking system, right? Like boom, 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 boom. We've seen that story already. I don't know if the sequel's gonna be any good. We'll find out. And God says something must stop this never-ending evil. And maybe you're familiar with some arguments or questions about Christianity. Like how could God uh, allow, if there is a God, how could he allow so much evil? Like, I've had great friends say that. If there is a God, how could he allow so much evil? Same person, same friends will say, if God is so loving, why would he be wrathful? Same person, same question. God's view is, evil will lose. That's his, that's his view on it. Evil will lose because God himself will deal with it. God, God looks at all of it and he says, I didn't start this problem, but I'm definitely going to finish it. 
Because he is so loving, God will pour out his wrath. He is patient, and he is patient in his justice. But God looks at the evil and the destruction of the world, and because he is a loving God, he is both patient with it, but then also he's like, I will end this. And so the flood comes, not to increase destruction and not to invoke payback. God isn't trying to get payback from people. He's not after his pound of flesh. He's there to end destruction. But now you might have some sort of sense of horror growing inside of you because you might know who you are and you might know what this city is and you might be wondering, what do our accounts say? What does the, the, the evil goodness account say with me, with us, with our system, with our way of operating? I mean, surely it can't be good. We're ravaging all of these mountains somewhere that we don't know so we can have iPhones and Teslas, right? Oh man, what do those accounts say? Surely we're in need of justice then. As in, when does the wave come to take us out? And believe me, I've thought about that this week. Is God deeply angry with me? But this is what happens. The land dries up. The birds return with leaves and sticks. Dry land appears. The, the boat settles on actual ground. Imagine that wonderful feeling. After like six months of just like, what the heck is happening? And then they get out and they put their own feet on solid ground. And they open the doors and the animals just run free. Probably a lot of new animals too. A rainbow fills the sky. See, joy comes in the morning. Why? Because God's wrath is always restorative and creative. This passage, I'm sure you heard it as Evie read it, really mirrors what happens in Genesis 1. He's commissioning them. He's telling them, go, be fruitful, multiply. He's telling them who they are as humans now. He's telling them even some restrictions on what not to do, like kill each other as if they needed that one. But they're, they're being told those things. It's mirroring what the very beginning and the creation of all things. Why? Because God's wrath is always bent towards restoration and creation, a whole new world, a whole new people. God makes something of wrath. His wrath restores. It's true for the people of Israel. They're in the wilderness. Uh, they're rebellious. They turn away from God. They make fake gods. They do all of these things over and over again. You know what God does with his little amounts of wrath and judgment for them as a people? He turns them into a people of God. Like, that's what he does through that whole story. I know Numbers is a boring book, but that's what he's doing with it. It's exciting. It's true also, the people uh, finally weigh into, you know, their, their future. They have this whole kingdom. Uh, they're doing really well. People from all over the world come to see what kind of kingdom they are. They're there, uh, celebrated. They begin to drift away from God. They forget even that the Bible exists. They, they move way far away. They begin to worship these other things. They become way more corrupt than Egypt ever was, and they get judged and put into exile. You can read Lamentations about it. It's sad, 
weeping stuff. But what is God doing? He's not just giving payback to these people like, now take it. What he's doing and what he does is he creates a people through that wrath. And they're the same people that return and worship God in Nehemiah and Ezra's day that we talked about in the first Sunday of the year. God's wrath restores. Ultimately, the main plot line or one of the main plot lines in the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus is the cross and the empty tomb. And I just want us to understand, like, the cross is just a whimsy twig. If the accounts aren't being checked, and if God isn't trying to deal with justice, if wrath isn't real, if there's no real burden at stake with sin, then Jesus taking the wrath due us is some sort of weird, cosmic, divine child abuse. But instead, what it is, is God dealing with wrath and restoring things. Romans 1.8, you know, says that the wrath of God is revealed from the heavens. Romans 3 says, we've all fallen short of the glory of God, right? Romans 6.23 says, the wages or the accounts of sin is death. The ledger is so off the charts with sin. If you're wondering, oh, is judgment due me? Is wrath due me? The answer is yes. And yet God delights in mercy and delights in having mercy triumph over judgment. Loves seeing wrath turned into new life. God's wrath is always restorative and so Jesus takes all of the wrath that is due to you and me and this entire world, and he takes it upon himself. The promise at the end of this Noah story about, you know, the, the wonderful rainbow and God's not going to destroy the world anymore that way, it's actually, it's a commitment God is making to deal with sin on himself instead of us. Galatians 3.13 says, But Christ has rescued us from the curse pronounced by the law. When he hung on the cross, he took upon himself the curse for all of our wrongdoing. He's the better and more true and more wonderful Noah. Actually blameless. Unendingly faithful. Who knows God so intimately. Like he and God are one. Steadfast. He saves all of humanity through his own work on the cross. 1 Peter 2, 24 says, he personally carried our sins in his body on the cross so that we can be dead to sin and live for what is right. And he says, by his wounds, you are healed. You know, there's this fascinating, uh, it's kind of like a pipe and beer theological concept. So you're gonna get a bonus outside of City Seminary or anything like that. Did you know that there are scars in heaven? Did you guys know? I don't, have you ever thought about that? Some of you have some surgeries, some knee surgeries. Those scars are small now. Anyway, there are scars in heaven. They're only Jesus' scars. In the resurrection, when he comes back, Thomas puts his hands there and puts them in his side. Like he resurrected Jesus has scars. But they're the only ones. Because as we see, like our wounds are healed. He's the only one that carries scars. 
And for all eternity, they will be a banner for all of us to see. They'll be a sign, like a memorial, not of the evil of this world, because the evil of this world will just be like this distant, vague memory. Instead, his scars will be a memorial to all of us of the outlandish, overwhelming love of God that is poured out on us instead of wrath because by his wounds we are healed. God's wrath is restorative. There's the Greek definitions of stories. There's two types of stories. There's tragedies and comedies, right? Classic, we all know this. Comedies, it's like, The story ends in a wedding. It's a happy, wonderful story. Or there's tragedy. It ends in a funeral. Ends in death. That's a tragedy, right? Those are the two options that you can have. The story of humanity because of Christ's death and his resurrection is forever a comedy. And while this story is hard and it's hard to read, it's hard to even fathom, it's a story bent towards a marriage, a wedding where Christ awaits the bride and has done all that's needed to bring the church to himself. And all of the sad and the evil things are now untrue and they've been dealt with by Jesus, not by us. And all that remains is a city of wonderful life, a city with vibrant peace as the the church comes to be with Jesus forever. As it said, like, the dwelling place of God is the same as the dwelling place with humanity. Uh, there's a really uh, great song that talks about this. It's called Where the Streets Have No Name. Uh, it's, uh, you know, about this band, U2. I tried to figure out what to write under there, and I just I thought, best band ever. But then there's a song, Where the Streets Have No Name. And Bono, uh, in his new book, Surrender, talks about how each time they play this song, which was kind of made in a time of chaos for them. Each time they play this song, uh, they say that they can feel God walking into the room. Whether it's in a studio, it's in a mass auditorium, whether it's in a stadium, wherever, it's like God is with them. And I think it's transcendent because it joins the agony of present life with the future hope that Christ brings. So I'm just going to read the verses for you because the choruses are just, anyway says, I want to run, I want to hide. I want to tear down the walls that hold me inside. I want to reach out and touch the flame where the streets have no names. It says, I want to feel sunlight on my face. I want to see the dust cloud disappear without a trace. I want to take shelter from the poison rain where the streets have no name. The cities of flood, our love turns to rust. We're beaten and blown by the wind. We're trampled in dust. I'll show you a place high on the desert plain where the streets have no name. And he's talking about the end. Joy comes in the morning. Those who sow in tears reap shouts of joy. Christ has secured all of that for us by the wrath he took on for us. The colors of the sky tell us that every time we get a rainbow, which is now quite often. The waters definitely subside, and we're made new. So let's rejoice. Let's pray. 
Uh, Jesus, we come to the table now amazed by your ability to be broken, to be, have your blood shed, to take on the wrath that is due to us all, but instead restore and resurrect us to a guaranteed life of peace. Fill us today with peace. Fill us today with joy. Help us continually have an inclination in our hearts towards worship and adoration of you. Thank you, Jesus. Amen.